Margaret and I have been married 30 years. I've been in Christian ministry uh, nearly that whole period of time and had a great ministry. Uh, I've loved it. Uh, about 10 years ago, we adopted two little girls that were a part of our extended family. Our son was grown, and I actually have two granddaughters older than these two little girls. But in the 10 years since we adopted the children, uh, our life has been filled with conflict, anger, drama. Ugh, I've never seen so much drama in my life. And has constantly worn on our marriage and our relationship. Uh, probably was a, a significant influence on my leaving the pastorate. Uh, not because I was asked to, but because of the pressure. I mean, seriously, I, I was trying to work on a master's degree and getting phone calls and having to rush home uh, because the police were at my house. And this is when my kids were like seven and eight. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's been tough. And uh, one of the reasons it's been tough is I've spent a lifetime trying to understand how to help people change, how to help them grow, why we all do the things we do. Uh, I've been working with broken families my whole life. And yet with all the experience, with all the spiritual background, with um, all the supposed wisdom, um, I was failing. At least that's what it felt like. Coming face to face with the issue of my own powerlessness. You know, we talk about it, I've preached sermons on it, I teach about it at uh, the Exodus Academy all the time. But being face to face with being madly in love with two little girls and a wife and watching it all fall apart, there was nothing I could do. 10 years of that. And so we're exhausted, absolutely worn out. And uh, it looks like at this point, uh, Kendall will have to go back into the custody of the state because we can't keep her safe, can't take care of her. And so that's sad. Uh, it, it challenges your view of God. Is God really a good God? Is He good? Can I trust Him? Um, can I release the, the welfare of uh, two uh, little girls with so much potential to a future that uh, is really uncertain at this point? The answer is yes. You know, coming face to face with my powerlessness, constantly having to deal with the reality of my own sinfulness, and so I'm fighting myself, my own sin, their sin. Uh, I mean, Satan was just having a heyday. But the more I could stop and recognize that my happiness, my future, my, my inner serenity and peace, it, it really couldn't be predicated on what they did. Uh, it had to come back to, if God is good, then I can trust Him. And so I'm, I'm not okay with how things are. I don't want them to be this way. I, I, I weep for uh, 
what I see happening to Kendall. And, and uh, I know firsthand what, what's ahead for her, potentially. And it breaks my heart. But it breaks God's more. And, and where I'm feeling that for one little girl, uh, he's feeling that for all of us. And, and so it's not okay, uh, but God is good. And, and so, you know, I've always believed God was good, and I've always believed in His strength, but it, I never saw it in a way where the strength in His compassion I mean, it would have been a lot easier to just walk away from Kendall and Callie a long time ago and just written them off. My, my life would have been much, much easier. I can't imagine bearing the pain and the difficulty and the frustration of us at our worst. Um, and that's just a testimony to what real love is. He loves us. He's not playing about it. He loves us. And he's not kidding. He loves us, and we can't, uh, we don't have the right to evaluate that based on our circumstances. It's a hard lesson, but it's true. My name is Paul Stevens, and this is my story. This is my story. Yeah. Thank you. Paul has become a, a very dear friend of mine uh, and mentor for me for the last six years that I've known him. And uh, man, I love you, Paul. Thank you for sharing your story. I'm, I'm thankful for the work that you do with the Exodus Project and Exodus Academy. God is using you tremendously there. And uh, I, just, I just love the fact that you're a partner here and that you're walking with us and God is going to continue to bless and use you even in greater ways, I believe it, in the future. Don't you? Amen. Amen. We love you, brother. This thing is not centered and it's driving me crazy. So, all right, here we go. Good morning. Well, I want to transition just a little bit here to another um, adoptive father, if I can, in our story this morning. But before we get into our story, can I just tell you where we're going real quick? Let me just say this. I want this to be on your hearts and on your minds before we get too far into the story, and it's this. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy in your life, right? That's what John 10, 10 says. And so we need to know that that is his goal. He wants to take from you. He wants to hurt you. He wants to harm you. And in everything that you're facing in your life, he wants to use it against you. God wants to use it for your good and for his glory, right? So as we look at this story today, I want you to think about even though I'm facing some difficulty, even though I'm walking through something that is hard, even though I don't understand maybe what, what's happening, I may even be mourning right now through the brokenness of my life. God is good and has a desire to use whatever it is you're facing for his glory. I believe that. I believe that. God is with us. He's going before us. He says he'll never leave us or forsake us. He's working all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. We can trust that this morning. Well, our story is found in the uh, amazing book, of Esther. 
Uh, it's a great book. It's 10 chapters. And, and we have recently discussed several women from the Old Testament in the last several weeks. Um, and surprisingly, this morning, we're not discussing another woman. We're not discussing Esther, even though the book bears her name. The truth is she's not the hero of the book. I mean, she is a hero. And she is a great character in the story, and God uses her tremendously for his glory. But she's not the main hero of the story. I think that's kind of interesting. I believe that hero is her cousin and her adoptive father, Mordecai. Uh, You know, there's been different heroes throughout history, people who have stood for what is right uh, at different times in, in history. And I, when I think about that, my first, if I'm being honest, you know I love movies. My first thought is I go to Braveheart. Freedom! Remember, remember the movie? Is anybody a Braveheart fan? That was about William Wallace. He was a Scottish guy who was fighting for independence of, of, of Scotland from England. Uh, he, he stood for something that he believed that was right. You know, I think about uh, William Wilberforce. He was an abolitionist in the late 1700s fighting against slavery. He stood up for what was right. I think about Martin Luther. Martin Luther stood against the Catholic Church and said, no, our salvation isn't in what we do. It's not in our works. It's in the grace of God through faith. And it starts the Reformation, right? I think about his namesake, Martin Luther King Jr., who stood for racial equality and social and and, and civil and all that he did in the 60s. He changed our country and I believe the world for the better because he was willing to stand for what was right. Think about other names and other heroines and heroes like Rosa Parks, Nelson Mandela, Harriet Tubman, Winston Churchill, and the list goes on and on. And if we were to think about it, Mordecai and Esther would be on this list of heroes. They stood for what was right and they made a difference in the world. Now this morning, we're not going to read the entire story of Esther. You're welcome. So that would take a while. But let me say this, go home and read it. It's 10 chapters, it's not very long, and it is an amazing, amazing story. Go home and read this entire 10 chapters, but what I'm going to do is kind of recap the story, and then there's going to be moments where we pop into the scripture to take a deeper look exactly what's being said uh, in the text, okay? Uh, First thing I want you to know is some of the background. So this story comes from 5th century B.C., uh, you know that many people from Jerusalem were taken into exile into Babylon. Well, then the Persians came in and, and kind of disrupted that. And then many Jews were living in Persia. Some of them had returned to Jerusalem. And uh, Mordecai's family was living here in this Persian kingdom called Susa. Uh, so in some of your Bibles, the king of Susa and the king of, this, of Persia, of this great kingdom... Uh, his name is King Xerxes. In some of your translations, it's, it says his name is King Ahasuerus. So that's the one we're going to use this morning from the uh, English Standard Version. But I want to tell you, this guy, man, he loved to party. He did. He loved to party. He loved to show off his military might. He loved to show off his, uh, uh, his wealth. And so for 180 days, he's showing off all the stuff that he's got, his military, his power, his money. And then at the end of those 180 days, he throws a banquet, throws a party. He's always throwing parties. So he throws a seven-day party. Just to give you a little taste of how big this party was, he he would invite 15,000 guests to his party. That's a pretty big party, right? He had 2,000 horsemen. Uh, He had, you know, I'm guessing that's like soldiers on horses, not like, you know, for some of you uh, people that think the horse man, it's not that kind of a horseman, right? This is soldiers on a horse. He had 2,000 lancers. He had 10,000 infantrymen. He had this amazing uh, uh, 
display of his military might. In fact, the text says that everybody who wanted to come to his party could. Everyone. In fact, everyone who came could drink as much wine as they wanted. It just shows a little example of the opulence of this king and his kingdom, right? So in one night in his drunkenness in this party, he decides, I want to show off my beautiful wife, Vashti. And so he says, go get her, tell her to put on her crown and prance around the party. Well, Vashti wasn't having it. She said, no, thank you. I'm not doing it. No, no, sir. Right? Which she don't really say to the king. She ends up not being queen anymore because of that act that she pulled. And so this is how we're introduced to Mordecai and his cousin, Esther. The king begins to look for a new queen. And in doing so, he wants to put together a harem of beautiful young women from all over the kingdom. And Esther is going to be one of those young women taken into the kingdom. So on the, on the back of your card this morning, the first thing we see is that Mordecai has a father's heart. He has a father's heart. He sees that his, uh, his little cousin Esther, her parents have passed and died. And now he's going to adopt her and care for her. Not just care for her, he really wants to be her father. He loves her. In fact, in the second chapter, it says that when Esther's in the harem, that Mordecai would go every day to the harem to check on Esther, see how she's doing, just to make sure she's doing okay every day. What was happening to Esther? I want to know. He had a father's heart. We also see that he was a good father because he told Esther, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. Don't let anybody know that you're a Jew. And she doesn't, which to me, anytime I see a kid obeying their parents, I go, way to go, mom and dad. You know, it's just kind of a, a big deal, you know. Um, my kids obey sometimes, and it's a good thing. Um, but I say, you know, she's obeying her, her father, and, and that's a good thing. We see he's a good, he's a good dad, and he has a father's heart. Um, then we see that the king falls in love with Esther, and he's going to make her the queen. Queen Esther. She's going to have influence and prominence. Second thing on your card about Mordecai is this. He's a good and godly man. He's a good and godly man. Why do we say that? Well, we see a story begin to play out here. Mordecai has a job, evidently, or uh, just really enjoys hanging out at the king's gate. I'm not sure which it is. But he is always at the gate of the king, at the kingdom. Always there. Every time we hear about Mordecai, he's hanging out at the kingdom gate. Uh, but we see that one day he's there and he hears the, the scheme or he hears the plans of two of the king's security guards. They're going to kill the king. And so Mordecai is a good citizen. He, he wants what's best. Even though he's kind of living in a foreign land. He's a Jew living in a foreign land. He chooses to do the right thing. And he goes and tells Queen Esther. He says, there's these two guys and they're going to kill the king. So she takes that information to the king. The king then hangs those two men, and what's interesting is the servants of the king write down this good deed in a book. It's kind of like called the king's book, and it's something they would do. They would keep up with all the things that happened to the king, things that happened around the king, and it would be sort of a history of what happened in his life. It's going to be good to remember this because we, we come back to this book in a little, in a little while, okay? Um, but he writes this down and remembers that Mordecai has basically saved his life. We see that uh, Mordecai is a, a godly man. There's another character that's introduced in the story. His name is Haman, and he's a wicked, wicked man. He's very proud. He's, he's very wealthy, and he is very full of himself. And we see that he becomes second in command in the entire kingdom. And when he's second in command, he wants everybody to know it, okay? So when he walks around, he wants you to bow down. I'm second in command. You'll bow down when I walk around, right? 
So he walks by the king's gate and he sees Mordecai. Well, Mordecai's along the line, he comes along the lines of Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego. Remember what they did? Did they bow? No, we don't bow. We don't bow for an idol. We don't bow for some music. We don't bow for some other king. We only bow for God Almighty. And that's the way that Mordecai felt. So when Haman walked up and lifted his head like, bow before me, Mordecai just went. Right? There's this little tension moment. And Mordecai was standing for God in that moment and to a very powerful person. In that moment, Haman decided, you're a dead man. You are a dead man. And not just you. But every single one of your race is a dead man and woman and child. I'm going to exterminate the Jews because of what you just did to me. Now, do you think that's racism? Do you think that is is crazy bigotry and hate? Yes, it is. And he was was hell-bent to see all of the Jews murdered. So he goes to the king. The king had a drinking problem, evidently, because he goes to the king, and in a drunkenness, he convinces the king to write a death decree to kill every Jew in the kingdom. Now, the thing about Medo-Persian decrees is they can't be reversed. Not even the king can reverse a decree that's already been signed. So Haman says, I want to do this king in his drunken stupor, says, here, take my my ring, my signet ring, and signify that I've okayed this for whatever reason. Mordecai hears about this death decree. Every Jew in the kingdom is going to die and perish. And Mordecai comes to his spot at the king's gate and he weeps and he mourns in sackcloth and ashes. He does it publicly, which to me says he's authentic. Doesn't matter where he's at, he's going to be who he is, wherever he is. And so at the king's gate, at his job or at this place that he stayed all the time, he was weeping and mourning for the fate of the Jews. This is a horrible, horrible situation. And Mordecai is showing his mourning and his sadness for what has been done. Esther doesn't know why he's mourning. So she sends some servants to, to Mordecai and says, why, why are you mourning? What, what's going on? He begins to tell her what is happening, that Haman has paid the king. He's basically tried to buy the Jews. He's paid the king and he wants to murder them all. And that maybe God wants to use even Esther in his plans to redeem this situation. So Esther tells Mordecai, she says, listen, you know the law. If anyone comes to before the king who hasn't been invited before the king, you'll be put to death immediately. You know that's true, right, Mordecai? She says, the only hope I have is that he holds out his golden scepter because when he holds his golden scepter out to me, that means I can live. But who knows, I may perish. So I want to jump into the scripture here in Esther 4, we're going to see that Mordecai is a, a, he's a, he's a father's heart, right? He's a good and godly man, and he's a great leader because of the way he's leading her to do something she's never considered before. Esther 4, verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. This is the servants. He says to, to tell Esther, don't think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than any of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this, verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf 
and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will, will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. See, Mordecai is a good leader because he's invested into this girl's life. He's got steel in him, doesn't he? You see it when Haman comes up to him and he just stands his ground. He's put that steel in his child. She's got some of that steel. The way he's raised her, the way he's led her, the way he's invested in her, she's got strength and heart. And he tells her, Esther, I want you, I love this part. He says, Esther, I want you to know God wants to use you, I think. But listen to this. If you don't want to be used, God's going to use somebody else. Did you see that in the text? He said, salvation or deliverance will, will rise from somewhere for the Jews. I love his faith, don't you? Mordecai's got this faith. He's saying, it's going to happen. God's going to save the Jews. You can be the one to, to be a part of this. You can be a part of God's plan if, if you'll see that this could be the reason you're alive. He said, Esther, this could be the very purpose for your life. And in that moment, she responds from her own faith, not just because dad told me to. She responds from her own faith, and she says, all right, gather the Jews in Susa. Pray and fast for me, and I will make a stand. Listen, it's important when your own kids choose to make their own stand. Not just, well, my dad said so. Mom told me to do it. No, no, no. Your kids need to have their own steel. They need to have their own faith, and there needs to be a moment in their lives where they say, I'm going to make my stand. Not your stand, Mordecai my stand. And she chooses to make this stand even though it might cost her her life. So after three days of fasting and praying, she approaches the king. Thankfully, he holds out the golden scepter, which means she's not going to die. And she enters and he says, Esther, what's the request? He says, make any request. I'll give you half the kingdom if you want it. He loved her. Well, she says, well, what, what is she supposed to say? In that moment, it's like she freezes up. It's very interesting. She knew what she was supposed to say. Uh, will you please save my life and the life of my people? But she doesn't say that. She freezes up. Uh, uh, have you ever felt like that? You know, I've had, a, I've had a former life as a singer, previous career as a singer, and there have been a few moments where I've forgotten the words, you know. That's not a fun feeling, by the way. Not, not fun at all. There's, have you ever stood before someone to give a speech or something and you're just kind of like, uh, uh. This is what Esther is feeling in this moment. I'm supposed to do something really important and I can't get the words out. In just a little bit, we're going to see that God uses even the mistake. Even her uncertainty, we're going to see that God uses it. She probably felt like she froze up, like she failed. But I want you to know God's timing is perfect. When we trust the Lord, when we love the Lord, when we want to seek uh, his advancement, we want to know him and serve him, he even uses our mess-ups. He uses our mistakes, and everything belongs when we're seeking to serve him and trust him. Well, Haman is sitting there at this, at this meeting with the king, and Haman leaves the meeting, and she basically has told them, listen, just come back tomorrow for another feast. Would you do that? She can't get out the request, the real request. So she says, will you come back tomorrow? And the king says, well, okay, I'll do another feast. And Haman will come back. Well, Haman leaves that meeting with Esther and the king. And he is on cloud nine. It just says he's, he's, he's very proud of himself. And he walks out and he sees the king's gate. And guess who he sees? Who's hanging out at the, at the king's gate? Mordecai. 
And the Bible says that Mordecai doesn't stand or sit. He says he doesn't even tremble at Haman's uh, presence. In other words, I couldn't care less. In fact, Mordecai is probably pretty angry. The death decree has been written. And so he probably stares a hole in Haman. It makes Haman so angry. He goes off to his home. He finds his wife. He finds his friends. And he says, this Mordecai, I can't enjoy my success. He says, have you guys not heard how awesome, awesome I am? I mean, really, I've got so much money. I've got so many sons. I'm second in command. In fact, I don't know if you heard or not, I just came from a party with the queen and the king, just the three of us. And she's inviting me to another one tomorrow. I'm a big deal, right? That's his heart. That's, he's so arrogant. He's so full of himself. And his wife says, well, honey, why don't you just hang him, kill him? And his buddy says, hey, that's a pretty good, good idea. In fact, why don't you let everybody see it from all over the kingdom? Hang him 75 feet in the air. By the way, look at the ceiling in here. 75 feet is, this is only half that distance. That ceiling is only half the distance of 75 feet. Everyone in the kingdom would see Mordecai swinging if that had taken place. So he, he leaves and he decides, the next morning I'm going to go to the king and I'm going to ask him for permission to hang Mordecai. This is my plan. This is exactly what I'm going to do. So that night the king couldn't sleep. That night, the king's trying to sleep, and, and he can't sleep. And so he tells one of his servants, hey, bring me a book. You know, sometimes when you can't sleep, you want a book that'll put you to sleep. You know what I mean? And evidently, he wants to read his own book. So they bring him the king's book. Well, what's written in the king's book? The fact that Mordecai had saved his life. Remember that? It was registered in the king's book. It was written down. And so here the, here's the king, and he, he's woken up. And he, he's reading through the book, and he's like, wait. He, he wakes up the next morning and asks his servant, hey, did we ever reward this Mordecai guy? He saved my life. Did we ever give him a really great reward? And the servant goes, no, I don't think we did. We sure didn't. And he goes, we've got to do that. We've got to do something amazing for this guy. At that very moment, Haman walks in to ask if he can hang Mordecai. Not good timing on Haman's part, right? And so Haman comes in, and just before he opens his mouth about hanging Mordecai, the king does this. He says, Haman, let me ask you a question, brother. He says, man, I really, I really want to honor somebody. I mean, he's just, he's awesome. He's done something incredible. I really want to honor this man. What should the king do to show his honor? Well, do you remember that song? I, again, I love music. Do you remember that song, You're So Vain? <laughs> You're so vain. You remember that song? You probably think this song is about you. You're so vain. Thank you. I knew I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. Haman thought this song was about him, right? Haman's going, oh, let's see, he's putting two and two together. Oh, a man that God really wants to honor. Oh, that's got to be me. <laughs> yes. And so he comes up with this plan. He goes, oh, I got it, king. I got it. What you should do, you should let him wear your royal robe. Oh, that'll be awesome. He's like, and then, um, then you should put him on your royal horse. That'll, that, that's what you should do, king. And then somebody should lead that horse around the kingdom saying, this is what King Ahasuerus does for the man he wants to honor and leads him around on the horse. And the king says, that's a really great idea, man. It's really good. I really like that. Go and do all the things you just said 
to Mordecai. Can you imagine Haman's face? I'm trying to think. I think he's probably mortified in this moment. I'm I'm just saying. In this moment, he's going, you've got to be kidding me. I can't think of anything worse in my life. I hate this man. Are you kidding? And so that's exactly what he does. He, He puts the robe around Mordecai, puts him on the horse, has to lead him. Can you imagine his face? This is the man the king wants to honor. Not me. This guy, right? He leads him around town. He leads him around town. It says that when he's finished, I love this. It says that Mordecai goes back to his place at the gate. Almost as if it's saying, Mordecai's the same guy here today, tomorrow, whether you're going to honor him before the kingdom or not. He's just a humble man. He's going right back to where he always is. This is who he is. But Haman covers his head in shame and goes back to his home. Well, the next morning, he decides to go to the uh, feast that Esther has called him to with the king. And uh, he's there with the king. And Esther's made this feast, and she's prepared all these things. And the king says, okay, Esther, you've, you've made us wait. It's been 24 hours. What, what, what do you need? What do you want? What can I do for you? Ask anything. Half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. And this was the moment. She was ready this time, right? She said, king, if you value me, please spare my life and the lives of my people. And the king is furious. Who would try and kill my wife, my queen? Who, who would do such a thing? And she stands up and she says, this foe, this enemy, this wicked Haman. And she points to Haman. Again, mortified, right? Well, this is not, things are not going so well for Haman. The king is outraged. He doesn't know what to do. He gets up, walks into his garden. He's trying to calm himself. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? He walks back in. He sees Haman has thrown himself at the queen to grab her feet to plead for mercy. Isn't it interesting that Haman falls at the feet of Esther instead of the feet of the, the king? Isn't that interesting? He knows who could make the decision to save his life, and he falls at Esther's feet. Well, the king walks in, and he says, in my presence, you would assault my queen? And when he says that, his guards grab Haman. And the king says, what am I going to do with this guy? And one of the servants said, well, you know what? It's kind of convenient. He actually just built a 75-foot gallows. Why don't we take him and hang him out there? And the king's like, great. We don't have to build anything. Let's go do that. They take Haman. And on the very gallows that he planned to hang Mordecai, he himself swings for all the kingdom to see. Right? This is, this is incredible. I just keep thinking about this, you know, what goes around comes around. You ever heard that phrase? Not in some weird new agey way, but I'm just, just thinking about this. Mordecai had, had told the king about the plan for his death threat in the book, and the book ends up saving Mordecai's life. Haman wants to hang Mordecai. He hates, he's bitter, but he ends up hanging on that gallows himself. Crazy. It's crazy. So then the king gives Esther Haman's palace. She gives him all his riches. 
he gives her all his riches. And then she introduces Mordecai to the king. Mordecai becomes second in command. And that, this is our fourth thing on your card. Mordecai had God's favor. There's no question. He had God's favor. God had brought him to the mind of the king in the middle of the night. God had judged the man that hated him and wanted him dead and wanted all the Jews dead. God had elevated him from the outside the gate to second in command. I couldn't help but think about the verse of scripture that David wrote in Psalm 23, where it says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Was Mordecai walking through the valley of the shadow of death? You better believe it. That morning he was supposed to hang. The people have a date coming up in the death decree where they're supposed to be wiped out. Definitely in the valley of the shadow of death, but look what God does in his life, and he does it in your life as well. Verse 5, but you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. I couldn't help but think about that verse. Can you imagine? Mordecai's riding around on a donkey, and Haman's leading him around thinking, God, you... You're trying to show me something? You're trying to tell me something? What's interesting is God's name and, and the, even the idea of God is not spoken of in this book at all. It's the only book in the Bible that doesn't speak of God. Yet in the lives of so many of these people, we see God's providence and his plan playing out in their lives. Haman was dead, but the death decree was still very much alive, and it was, the date was coming up. The date was coming up. And so Esther throws herself at the feet of the king. He says, what can we do? And the king says, once a decree is made, I can't reverse it. He says, but take my ring and, and write a new decree. So Mordecai writes a new decree. And in that decree, it says that the Jews, if they're being attacked or if they're being hated, that they can respond and they can kill anybody who comes against them. Not only that, they can kill anybody in their family. They can kill their wives and their children. And they can take all their belongings. And in doing so, it causes a fear to come across the land of anybody who's not a Jew. It's, it's, it's creepy. We've done what? And it changes the whole mindset of the Jews. Look in Esther 8, 14. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were uh, used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king, look at this, in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Don't you love those descriptors? Does that give you a sense of how they're feeling right now? The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'll, I'll, I'll be a Jew, right? If this is what's going on, if the Jews can now kill everybody and take all your stuff, I think I'm, gonna, I'm interested in the Jewish religion all of a sudden, right? So God has made a way where there seemed to be no way. Now listen. It shows all the rejoicing and all the joy in the people, but they've still got a date on the calendar to fight. And yet they're so full of joy. They're so full of hope because, you know why? Clearly God is with them. And they begin to remember, oh yeah, God does deliver. And then the day comes 
for the fight. Esther 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, when, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. I'm going to say that again. When the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. Listen, God reversed it. <laughs> what they thought was about to happen, God turned it around, didn't he? He completely reversed it. The Jews end up killing nearly 76,000 people who opposed them. The Jews end up hanging all 10 sons of Haman so that there would be no revenge for their father's death. And interestingly, watch this. The date on the calendar for the big fight with the Jews, that they're to be wiped out, a genocide, that's one day before the Jews are supposed to celebrate Passover. How interesting. The very day before they're supposed to celebrate Passover is the day on the calendar where they're supposed to be wiped out. Do you think that's a coincidence? You think God's saying something here? He said, don't you remember? Don't you remember the deliverance from Egypt? You think I'm going to let you go? You're facing this, this death decree. You've got nothing on me. God is saying, you, you, don't worry. I've got you. I will deliver you. I'm always with you. He reminds them of his faithfulness and his deliverance. So then Mordecai institutes a feast of his own. It's called Purim. And to this day, Jews around the world celebrate the Feast of Purim, which is a feast celebrating deliverance from Haman's hand. It's a big deal. Clearly, Mordecai was saying, God has been with us. This is God's story, and we are God's people, and he has not forgotten us. So I want to close this morning, and as I do, I want to just remind you of a few moments. <laughs> when you start adding them up, it's unbelievable. The title of the message is, the curse reversed. See, a curse is anything the devil wants to bring against you. Anything the enemy wants to use to discourage you, to cause you to doubt, to cause you to fear, to cause you to not have the life that Jesus wants you to have. So I want you to see the curse reversed in this story. Number one, Mordecai warned the king of the murderous threat. Ultimately, that act goes down in the book and it saves his life. This is what it tells us. Do the right thing. And trust that God will have the right timing when you need it. You do the right thing. And trust that God is a God of perfect timing. Haman wanted Mordecai to bow at the gate twice, remember? He was furious that Mordecai wouldn't bow. But look, Haman ends up bowing at the feet of Esther. God reversed it. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction. And this man was full of pride. And he was destroyed as he begged at the feet of Esther. Haman wrote the death decree, but God reversed it, didn't he? And Mordecai got to write the life decree. He got to write the justice decree. God reversed the curse. Mordecai thought he was helping the little girl deal with the death of her parents. But really he was raising a queen to give life to her people. There's no telling what your kids can do. There's no telling what God will do through them if we will raise them in the ways of the Lord. And we will trust him with all that we are and all that we have. There's no telling how he will use them for his glory. Esther feels like she can't get the words out 
the first time before the king. She stalls out. But God's timing is greater than our mistakes and our timidity. Because in that 24-hour period, look what happens. Haman's anger is white hot against Mordecai. So hot that he builds a a 75-foot gallows. Right? In that 24 hours, Haman builds the gallows and then the Lord reminds the king of Mordecai's good deed. And ultimately, Haman ends up hanging on those gallows. Haman's selfish plan, remember? He thought the song was about him. It backfired on him, didn't it? God reversed that, and he had to lead Mordecai around the city, and he goes home with his head covered in shame. His head was held high in all that he thought he was, and then he ends up walking home in shame with his head hung low. Haman built the gallows to hang Mordecai, but he and his sons were the ones that hung instead. Haman had been the second in command, but now Mordecai is second in command. The Jews were set to be wiped out, to be erased, but God gave them victory. See, even the king said, this can't be reversed. Remember when he said that? He says, the decree cannot be reversed. And God says, you're not the true king, (laughs) right? He says that in this story, he says that in your story, there's only one true king. He gets the last word. He gets to say that the curse in your life is reversed. God gave the Jews victory and power to kill their enemies. And then lastly, Mordecai had been exiled into captivity. He couldn't come past the gate. He had this job at the gate. And yet God gives him favor, gives him the life of his enemy, gives him the home of his enemy, gives him the wealth of his enemy, gives him the position of his enemy. God reversed the curse. Not only that, God honors Mordecai's life. Look at Esther 9, verse 3. It says, all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all provinces. For the man Mordecai grew stronger, or more and more powerful. And you skip down to uh, chapter 10, verse three, says, for Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Mordecai went from sitting at the gate to sitting next to the king. Remember what I said in this, this morning when we started? I said, I want you to remember what the story, where we're going. That we all face difficulty, we all face struggles, we all face questions and doubt and pain. And the enemy wants to use those things to discourage you and pull you back from the fight. And God say, no, I'm with you in the fight. I'm with you. I love you. And and when I think about this story, the number one curse reverse that I think about is Satan, right? Because Satan, when he tried to deceive, and he did deceive Adam and Eve, he sees sin come into the world. And as sin is wrecking the entire world and the lives of humanity, Satan's like, yeah, my victory, right? I won that one. And then he sees Jesus hanging on a cross, Dead. Can you imagine Satan thinking, oh yeah, I won that one, right? I won. Sin has entered the world and it's so much so that it's killed the very son of God. I won. But I want you to know he was wrong, right? He thought that that defeat, he thought that was his victory. It was his defeat. He thought Jesus hanging on a cross, his death, was the end that he had won. But the resurrection of Jesus, listen, that proved that the curse was reversed, didn't it? 
It's the greatest reverse in all history. And it can do a reverse in your life, no matter what you're walking through, whatever you're dealing with, whatever curse that you're feeling in your own life. I feel like I can't catch a break. I feel like I'm facing so more than I'll have to. And God is saying, I want to use that junk in your life. I want to use that brokenness for my glory and for your good. But do you trust me? Listen, it doesn't mean that you don't weep. It doesn't mean that you don't enter authentically and say, God, why? Mordecai was at the gate and he was sitting in sackcloth and ashes weeping. God, why? How could this be your plan? He did it authentically. As Christians, we're called to be authentic with whatever we're walking through. But we're also called to trust God who knows the end of the story. And to know that he is the only one who can reverse the curse. Praise God. He reverses the curse. I'm going to close. Galatians 3.10 says this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all these things written in the book of the law and do them. He's saying, if you don't abide by everything written in the Bible, then you're cursed. And Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount and says, yeah, you can't do it. You can't do it. You thought just killing somebody was a sin. I'm saying if you have anger in your heart, that's sinful. He says, you, you know, the word says adultery is sin, but I'm saying if you have lust in your heart, that that's sin. He makes it where no one can follow the rules. But Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Look at uh, Galatians 3.13, which says, Christ redeemed us from the curse, praise God. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Church, the curse is reversed. Can I just encourage you this morning to say this to you? If God is for you, who can be against you? What can separate you from the love of Christ? You may feel cursed, you may feel down, you may feel like you can't catch a break. This reminds you that after Mordecai wept at the gate, when they sent the new decree out, he laughed and danced in the palace. <laughs> Isn't that good? He wept at the gate, but God reversed the curse. They sent the decree out, and all over the kingdom, the Jews partied with joy and peace and hope and strength because that's what God does in the lives of broken people. Weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the what? In the morning. That's what God does. David says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, and they won't be. Friends, this morning, you need to tell the enemy, the curse is reversed. Can we say that together? The curse is reversed. Say it again. The curse is reversed. He has no place in your life. Doesn't mean that you don't weep. It doesn't mean that you don't struggle. Doesn't mean that you don't have questions and doubt. But it does mean that he can't have your life. That God will use even the broken pieces. Somehow he weaves them together in the most beautiful mosaic of his redemption, of his sovereignty, of his goodness. When we trust him with all we are and all we have. Friends, the curse is reversed because of Jesus. Father God, we just come to you this morning. We just say thank you, God. I can't think, there's so many times in my life, Lord, that I didn't see a way out. All I saw was hopelessness and fear and doubt and struggle and my own sin, my own mistakes. I can't imagine what Esther felt in that moment where she couldn't get the words out. 
This is the most important moment of her life and she can't say what she needs to say. And yet you use those mistakes. You use those hours in between for your perfect story to remind us that you are still in the deliverance business. This death decree was supposed to happen one day and the next you were gonna remind them that you're still delivering people from their enemies. God, will you remind us this day? The curse is reversed. Whatever it is, whatever tape that plays in the minds of these people in this room, that says they're not good enough, they're not loved, they're not smart enough, they're ruined, they're dirty, they're hurt, they're broken. May the curse be reversed in them, Lord. And may you say to us that you're enough, that your grace covers us, that you became a curse for us. Lord, in you, you alone, we are delivered. Jesus, because of your grace, because of your goodness. And today we celebrate, just as those Jews did. Today we're reminded that you are still with us. And you will make a way where there seems to be no way. You've reversed the curse. God, may we have that faith today as we leave this place in a little while. May you go with us reminding us, God, that your way is always perfect. To trust you even in the moments that we can't see. Which direction we need to go, what we need to feel, what we need to do. Just continue to follow you. Continue to serve you. Continue to honor you. Do the right thing. Seek you and know, God, that you are working. And you will provide and meet every need that we have. Lord, we love you today. Thank you for your kindness and your joy. In Jesus' name.